about who that person is that you can invite. Here's Brian. Well, good morning. Welcome again to TBA. So glad you guys are here this morning. I'm just curious, how many of you enjoyed some time away with spring break this past week? Maybe you got kids in school and got some time off, got away. Good, a few of you. For all of you, I hope that over the past week you've experienced some rest and refreshment and uh, are excited to be here this morning and be a part of, of what God has planned for us. If you haven't met me yet, my name is Brian Legg and I'm part of our lead pastor team here. And just, again, excited that you guys are here and a part of things today. You know, last week, Dave wrapped up our series on Joshua. We've been exploring that for several weeks and talking about the vision that God's put before us and how he was leading the Israelites into the promised land and comparing that to our story and just kind of journeying through that. And this morning, though, we're going to kick off a new series called Behold. And believe it or not, this is the series leading us into Easter. Can you believe Easter is three weeks away from today? It's hard to believe. The year just seems to run fast. In fact, the older I get, it seems like the faster the, the months and the years go on in front of us. But as we kick into this new series, we're going to be looking at the story of Jesus, especially his last days, from four different perspectives and really looking at four specific encounters that happened with Jesus and try to look at the story in that way. This morning we're going to talk about Jesus as the Son of God and we're going to be looking at the story of the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus goes and he spends time in prayer and then he's arrested and it's beginning his journey to the cross. And then next week, we're going to look at the story from the the perspective of Jesus on trial at the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. And we're going to be talking about that, looking at Jesus as the Son of Man. The following week, we're going to look at Jesus as the perfect lamb, the sacrifice for our sins. And we'll explore the crucifixion and what happened there at Golgotha. And then on Easter Sunday, we, of course, will be talking about the resurrection and looking at the story that happens in the garden tomb as Jesus is raised from the dead and overcomes death. So I hope that you'll be able to be here for all of that. It's going to be a great opportunity to truly encounter Christ over these next few weeks in this series. So if you want to follow along today, our primary text is going to be in Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 56. And you might just want to kind of put a finger in that because we're going to bounce around a little bit to add some context, but that's where we'll camp out most of the time. Before we jump into that part of the story, I want to step back just a little bit in Jesus' journey and give you some context for today specifically. In Matthew 16, we see Jesus begin to tell his disciples about his coming death. In Matthew 16, they're standing at Caesarea Philippi, and if you've ever seen that or seen a picture of it, it's this great cliff, and it's got all of these carven images and idols and stuff cut into the rock, all these pagan gods that were worshipped. And as they're standing there, Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And if you remember, this is where Peter says, you're the Messiah, you're the son of the living God. And watch how Jesus responds this. After Peter said that, Jesus responds like this, starting in verse 21. From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. But Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him saying, for saying such things. Now stop right there and just think about that for a second. What kind of relationship did Peter have with Jesus that he felt so comfortable that he could pull him to the side and reprimand him for what he was saying? He says, heaven forbid, Lord, this will never happen to you. But Jesus turned to Peter and said, get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You're seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Now remember, Jesus has just declared, or excuse me, Peter has just declared that Jesus is truly the Son of God, and he sees him as a Messiah who's come to save his people. But I think what Peter doesn't understand is how he's going to do that. 
He doesn't understand God's plan yet. Even though he's been following Christ for three years, he's still expecting this Messiah to come that's going to conquer the world and take over and, and be victorious in a battle sense. This mighty warrior. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not exactly what it's going to look like. So when Jesus says something about dying, Peter just can't understand. But Jesus wastes no time in clearing it up, does he? He knows his mission. He understands fully what he has come for and what his purpose is here on earth. And he makes sure that Peter understands, you're not going to stand in the way of me accomplishing my mission, accomplishing the purpose that my heavenly Father has sent me with. And he says, get behind me, Satan. You're a dangerous trap for me. And he's not actually calling Peter Satan in this moment, but what he's doing is pointing out, you're a temptation to me. You're tempting me to step away from what I've been called to do for my purpose and my mission, and I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. There are a lot of other times in the Gospels where we see Jesus tell his disciples about his death and how it's coming. In fact, part of the time he gives great detail. In Matthew chapter 20, starting with verse 17, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside privately, and he told them what was going to happen to him. Listen, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die. And then listen how he goes on. Then they will hand him over to the Romans to be mocked, flogged with a whip, and crucified. But on the third day, he will be raised from the dead. He didn't just tell them he was going to die. He was walking them through the specifics of how it was going to happen, what they could expect. I don't know about you guys, but I can't even predict what I'm going to eat for lunch tomorrow. And Jesus is telling them every detail about what's going to happen in his final days and how he's going to go to his death. And if I'm his disciples, I'm thinking, as I watch this stuff come to pass, that should be reassuring me and helping me to understand who Jesus is, that he truly is the Son of God, that he sees all of this and understands all this. He is the guy that they've been following for the last three years, exactly as he's told them. So fast forward into today's story with me. Garden of Gethsemane. It's been a couple of long days. Jesus and his disciples are tired. They've gone through a whole lot. They've just celebrated Passover together. And we know this is the Last Supper. They met in the upper room and they they took time to walk through that Seder meal. And as they did that, Jesus institutes what you and I know as communion, that Last Supper. He talks about how his body will be broken for them and how the blood will be poured out. And he begins to paint this picture of what that covenant relationship looks like. And it says they leave the upper room and they go out to the olive grove called Gethsemane. In fact, we're told in Luke that Jesus went as usual to this garden. He went as usual to the Mount of Olives. This was a common place for them to go. This would have been a garden just outside of the wall of the city, probably owned by a a private individual, most likely a wealthy person, who had given Jesus and his disciples permission to come and spend time in that garden. It's a place Jesus went often to pray to get away from everyone. But this night was different. Jesus was obviously distressed as he entered Gethsemane that night. Pick up with me in Matthew 26, starting verse 36. It says, And Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And he said, Sit here while I go over there to pray. And he took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Now think about this a minute. Jesus was truly the Son of God, part of the Holy Trinity, fully God. Yet he felt the same emotion and the same struggle that you and I would feel in a moment like this. We see the fully human side of Jesus in this moment. His soul is crushed with grief. Maybe you felt that way before. 
See, I think sometimes it's hard for us to remember that while Jesus was fully God, he was also fully man. When he was here on earth, he was fully man too. And he experienced and he felt all of the same things that you and I experience and feel. All that we walk through, all the struggles, all the difficulties, all the emotions, he experienced all of it. The writer of Hebrews reminds us powerfully of this. Hebrews chapter 2, starting with verse 14. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die. Not only by dying, and excuse me, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. We also know that the Son did not come to help angels. He came to help the descendants of Abraham. That's you and I. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. See, while Jesus was fully God, he also was fully man. That was on purpose, so that we could relate to him differently, so that we would understand and know that he had experienced life the same way we experience life. And we see several other examples in the same story in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you jump to verse 39, it says this, He went on a little further, and he bowed with his face to the ground, praying, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. The cup of suffering that he talks about here is a reference from the Old Testament, and it's a picture of God's wrath that's going to be poured out on him as he takes on your sin and my sin and the sin of his disciples and the sin of everyone who died before him and the sin of everyone who is yet to come till the end of time. Jesus, the only man who walked the earth without sin, perfect, is about to take on all of our sin, all of our darkness, all of our struggles, all of our problems. And he knows that he will stand before his Father and he will be separated from him in that moment. That's the scariest thing you can think about, to be completely separated from God's presence, that his Father will turn his back on him as he dies to pay the penalty for our sin. And his reaction is that he doesn't want to do it. Neither would I. And neither would you. That's the human reaction. You want me to die because somebody else did something wrong? I don't think so. I don't want to do that. Would you? But yet, as you watch him pray, he still prays with a heart of surrender. Not my will, but your will be done. And it's interesting to me that we also see in this simple encounter, we see him pictured purely as the Son of God because as he prays, what does he say? My Father. Well, according to the Gospel of Mark, the word he uses there is Abba. And you know what the word Abba means? It's the picture of a little child coming to Daddy. It's the common term. Daddy, I need to talk to you. Daddy, listen to me two, three, four, five-year-old child, how they would refer to their father. This is a picture of intimacy that you see as Jesus talks to his dad. And let me put it in context for you. Up to this point, 
God was so distant and so unreachable that you couldn't even speak to God. You had to have a priest to come between you and God to talk to him for you. The religious leaders taught this, that God is so holy and so set apart, you can't interact with God. And yet Jesus refers to him as daddy, like a little boy. Daddy. His relationship with God expresses a different intimacy than anyone has ever experienced up to this point. You read on in the story, it says that Jesus comes back to Peter and James and John and after he's spent some time in prayer, and you remember the story, what happens? He comes back and he finds them asleep, right? They're tired. They've had a long couple days. They fall asleep, and we see the human feeling and emotion. He says, can't you stay awake for even an hour? Can't you stay awake for just a little bit? I need you. This is my difficult time. This is my struggle. I need you to pray for me. I need you to pray with me. Can't you stay awake? And his closest friends let him down in that moment. You ever felt that? If you haven't yet, you will. Because guess what? People let us down all the time. Doesn't matter how good they are. Doesn't matter how good of a friend they are. Doesn't matter how close we may be. People will always let us down at some point. Your spouse may be the most perfect person you've ever met. And one day they'll let you down. And if you've been married very long, it's already happened. I guarantee it. It's the human part of us. Jesus experiences this. He's let down. But watch how he responds. He tells them to be alert and to keep praying. Verse 41. Keep watch and pray. So what? That you will not give into temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He's relating to his friends, reminding them that they have power within that is greater than their physical limitations. Even though you're tired, even though you're exhausted, even though you can barely keep your eyes open, there is something inside of you that is so much stronger. Because he knows that no matter how tired they are, this is a critical moment for them. He knows what they're about to endure. He knows what he's going to walk through and consequently what they're going to walk through with them. And he knows that they need this time in prayer to be encouraged and be strengthened by their Heavenly Father. And I think you and I can relate to this too because often our spirit is willing and we have the desire to connect with God. We have the desire to walk in obedience. But our body's weak. We fall to temptation. We wear out easily. We get distracted. We get off course. Jesus understood this feeling. He's facing temptation even now as he's praying to his daddy. He's tempted to put a stop to his mission, to call all the lists off. So he doesn't have to go to the cross. He could very easily right there say, no, I'm not doing it. I'm going to walk away. But he doesn't do it because he trusts the leading of his spirit and he trusts what his daddy's speaking to him more than he trusts what his human body might be telling him in that moment and what he may be feeling. He depends on the strength and the leading of his spirit rather than the fears and temptations of his flesh. And we see that two more times Jesus goes back to pray and then he comes back and finds his friends sleeping. Two more times, three times in total. He goes away by himself to pray, just barely out of earshot, still, still where they can see him, very close. And he comes back and they're sleeping. Second time, he doesn't even wake them up. The third time, he wakes them up. And only to let them know that everything's about to happen. It's time. Now's the moment for action. Wake up. And onto the scene comes Judas. And I'm sure you remember this part of the story. Here comes Judas, and he's accompanied by a crowd of men 
with clubs and swords. Judas, Jesus' disciple. One of the guys that's been following him for three years, who's built intimacy with him, who's doing life the way he's doing life, who's learning from him, who wants to be like him. And here he comes. Verse 49. Judas came straight to Jesus, and he said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he gives him a kiss. See, that's the normal greeting. It'd be like you and I shaking hands or, or giving a hug. It's the, hey, how you doing today? It's that normal kind of greeting that shows respect, that shows honor to his rabbi. He comes up and kisses him on the cheek, but in this case, Judas is betraying Jesus because he's already set that aside as a sign to say, when I kiss him, you know that that is Jesus. It confirms his identity, and you can go and arrest him. And right after that, we see Jesus' reaction, and Jesus' reaction is far from the expected human response. It's far from what I would respond in verse 50, it says, my friend, his betrayer, the guy who just kissed him on the cheek to get him arrested and start him towards his death, Jesus responds, my friend, go ahead and do what you've come for. Go ahead and do what you've come for. He goes on to tell us that the crowd immediately grabbed Jesus and arrested him. And this is where the story takes a very interesting turn for me. And it's where I want us to camp out for a little bit this morning. There's a couple verses in the story that tell this. But I want you to try to put yourself in the shoes of this character as they come onto the scene. At this point in the story, we read in the book of John that Peter grabs a sword and he cuts off the ear of Malchus, who is the slave of the high priest. John's the only gospel that gives us names. Every other one just tells us a disciple stepped forward and cut off the, the ear of a slave. But in John, it gives us the names. He steps up, he cuts off the ear of Malchus. Now think about it for a second. Peter's a hothead. Peter's a reactionary kind of guy. Every time you see Peter do something, he's all about action. He's gung-ho, he's jumping into it. He's the one that gets out of the boat and walks on the water and everybody else is scared to death. He reacts all the time. When he grabs that sword, I don't think he grabbed that sword to just cut off an ear. I think he grabbed that sword to defend his master. And he was aiming for the head, and luckily he was a bad shot, right? He just barely gets the ear. I mean, missed the whole head, cut the ear off. Probably didn't use a sword a lot, honestly. But watch what happens in that. Jesus' response, verse 52. Put away your sword, Jesus told him. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. Don't you realize that I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us and he would send them instantly? But if I did, how would the scriptures be fulfilled that describe what must happen now? I think Jesus is reminding Peter here in this moment, I'm still the son of God. I'm still in control. And I'm choosing to go to my death to fulfill the mission that my heavenly father sent me to earth with. I'm choosing to fulfill my purpose He is staying focused on why he has come. He is going to die to offer forgiveness and grace to all mankind, and he refuses to be distracted from that mission. The Gospel of Luke records that Jesus then reached out and he touched the ear of Malchus, and he healed him. Think about that. Think about what Jesus is reflecting in that moment. He's reflecting his mission and his purpose here on earth, that he's come to heal and to love even those who have come to kill him. Malchus has come to arrest him knowing that he's going to be put to death. But what if you're Malchus? 
Literally, there's like two verses in the story about Malchus. But put yourself in the guy's shoes for a moment. You've come to arrest Jesus, who you've heard all about. You've heard all of these stories about him. You know the things that he's done. You know the claims that he's made. You've been convinced that he's saying things that are blasphemous by claiming to be the Son of God. But as he arrests this rabbi, he has a personal encounter with Jesus like no other. I can't help but think that it probably went a little bit like this. I served an unapproachable God. While I, I served the high priest that served an unapproachable God. But everything changed in that one night. Everything changed in one night. I was drugged to the garden and then my ear... I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me back up. I was there in the garden with Judas. Judas knew exactly where Jesus was going to be. And we were all there waiting for him. It was crazy that night. His disciples were with him, but I saw Jesus. I, I was very close to Jesus, and you could tell he was visibly upset. And uh, Judas kisses Jesus on the cheek, and I was standing so close that I heard Jesus call Judas friend. And that's the last thing I heard, because then moments later I heard nothing. I saw the flash of a blade come toward my face, and, and I felt blood streaming down. And then it got quiet. And then I got dizzy. And then Jesus, he, he touched me. Like I said, I heard all the stories about Jesus, and I've heard all the stories about how Jesus healed people with his hands. There was this one time he, he healed a person with, with dirt and spit. And so many people, he just healed them with his hands. But it wasn't his hands for me. It was the way he looked at me. It was his eyes. That's what broke me. His eyes were filled with compassion and grief and joy. And, and, when, he, and when he pulled his hand away... My ear, I mean. That night, everything I heard about that man had changed forever. They had a mock trial for him. Um, the whole night was just set up to condemn him. And he didn't say a word. He, he just felt sorry for us there was the sentencing there was there was Pilate uh, the crucifixion and then there was an earthquake and then the veil I was in the temple I was in the temple when the veil was was ripped in half do you know what that means I mean even even I knew what that meant God had invited us all in the unapproachable God was now approachable God was on the move 
Malchus came to the Garden of Gethsemane with a mission to arrest this simple man who was accused of speaking blasphemy over and over by saying he was the Son of God. And I believe that even though he was following the orders of the high priest, that Malchus would have felt justified in his actions. From everything he had heard, from everything that he understood, from everything that he knew about Jesus, I think he was convinced that Jesus was crazy and that he needed to be silenced. He needed to be put to death. But then he had this encounter with Jesus. Peter cut off his ear, but Jesus stops the fighting immediately and reaches out to Malchus with a hand of healing. And that's all the Bible actually tells us, is that he reached out and healed him. But I can't help but think that there's not so much more to that story. I mean, Malchus has to be faced with a crisis of his own thoughts in that moment. He's heard about Jesus. He's physically seen him. him. He knows that he's a man. He's seen the reactions of Jesus even that night. He's watched his struggle. He's seen the emotional pain. He's experienced his humanness. But yet when Jesus heals him, what do you do with that? It's not just a normal man who reaches out and touches your ear and heals it when it's been cut off by a sword. It's not just a normal man who even has the desire to do that for you, especially when his own life is on the line. He's being arrested in that moment knowing that he's going to his death, and yet he reaches out and heals and shows compassion and shows love in that moment. And I can't help but think that the video interpretation isn't accurate when it says that it wasn't even his hand. It was his eyes and the way he looked at Malchus. It was that encounter that he had with Jesus in that moment. Malchus had an encounter with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And when Jesus healed him, he looked into the eyes of the Son of God and he knew. He just knew. And I think it's the same for you and me. Here's a really hard truth for us. We know what Jesus wants of us. He doesn't hide it from us. He makes it clear. He plants that deep in our hearts. And there are moments where we struggle with aspects of God's truth, and we might even read through Scripture and struggle with it, but yet deep down we know If we have had an experience with Christ, we know what he wants of us. We know what he's asking of us. It's not a question of knowledge. It's a question of what we'll do with it. In the book Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes about the struggle to determine whether Jesus was a lunatic or a liar or Lord. And you've probably heard that conversation. And if you think about that for just a minute, you've got to ask the question, I mean, was he just crazy? All this stuff that Jesus talked about that seemed crazy in that day, was he really just a lunatic? Because it went against all human understanding, everything he said. Or was he just a liar? Was he just a a complete hypocrite, just putting things out there? And then, in reality, that was just a face that he put out, and it wasn't who he was. Or was he genuine and transparent and authentic? Was he really Lord? Was he who he said he was? Was he really the Son of God? See, I think that's the struggle that Malchus was faced with in the garden. Who is this Jesus that just reached out and healed me? I've heard all about him. I know all of these things, but who is he? Because I've now experienced him. 
And I think Malchus walked away from that experience changed because of the encounter that he had with Jesus. I can't help but think that even though Scripture doesn't tell us this for sure, that Malchus walked away with a clear understanding that this truly was the Son of God, the Messiah. And here he was arresting him and condemning him to death. But how could that be? God was unreachable. God was set so far apart. He was so holy, he couldn't touch him. He knew that no man could stand in God's presence. Yet Jesus was standing before him, looking at him. He was reachable. He connected to him. He showed love in his response. He healed him. And I think that changed everything. And I would offer today that that changes everything for you and me too. It changes everything for you and me. Just like Malchus, when you and I have a real experience with Jesus, we are never the same again. And I'm not talking about just hearing about Jesus or even just reading about him. Those things are important, but I'm talking about experiencing who he is. When we come face to face with the Son of God and realize that he has come down to our level, that he's felt what we feel, that he's lived like we live, that he loves us in spite of our darkness and our brokenness and our betrayal, we walk away changed. That's the only option. And so I would ask you this one question this morning. Have you had an encounter with Jesus like what we see in Malchus? Have you experienced Jesus in that way? Can you walk away with confidence saying that he truly is the Son of God and more importantly saying that he truly is your Savior? And let me say something a little harder to you. If you're not sure, or you say, I, I can't really remember if I've had an experience like that, I would challenge that you've probably never had that encounter with Christ. Because I don't believe that you can come face to face with your Savior and have that kind of encounter and experience Jesus and who he truly is without walking away changed and knowing that you've experienced that. Here's what I know to be true. He loves you, both of us. He loves me, he loves you, all of us, in spite of our sin, in spite of our brokenness, in spite of our deepest, darkest secrets, and we all have them. We've all got those places in our heart that we don't want anybody to see, anybody to know about. We don't want to talk about them, even with our spouse. Jesus knows all of that, and he still loves us. But he loves us so much that he refuses to force himself on us. He invites us to a relationship that we have to choose to open the door and invite him in. You have to receive the free gift of grace that he's offering you. And if you're sitting there this morning and you're listening to this, and even if you've said that you were a Christian for a long time, but you realize that you've not had that kind of encounter, I want to encourage you to come to Next Steps this morning. Tim and Joni are back there. I'm going to be back there. We'll have some others there to volunteer and to, to pray with you and talk with you. But I'd love to talk with you about what it looks like to take that step to have that encounter with Jesus to experience who he truly is and how that will change your life. Band, you guys come on up. I'm going to pray and the band's going to play and I, I just want to ask you to respond however God lays it on your heart and it could be a number of different things. Maybe you just, 
you want to come here to the front of the stage and to, to kneel and pray. And, and really, there's nothing, I just need to say this, there's nothing magical or mystical about the experience of coming forward to pray. It really is just a public proclamation of your heart of surrender. You're walking in front of some people that are gathered here, a safe place in our church family, to say, God, I'm surrendering to you and what you want in my life. And it's you having some one-on-one time with him. Maybe you just need to grab a friend and pray. And I would challenge you, don't grab somebody who's early in the journey. Grab somebody who's a step ahead of where you are, that they can pray with you and help to guide you and help you to take your next step. Or maybe you need to come back to Next Steps and talk with us there and pray with us. We'd love to do that. We'd love to help you take the next step on your journey. Would you stand with me? Let's take a moment and pray. And then as the band plays, you respond. God, we just thank you that you do love us so much that you offer a relationship to us, God. Thank you that you want that encounter with us, that even when you know our deepest and darkest secrets, when you know the, the ugliness that is within inside of us, God, when you know the, the places of our heart that we don't want to tell anybody about and we don't want to reveal, that even then you love us, and even then you want relationship with us, and even then... That's why you died on the cross for us. So God, I pray that this morning we could stand before you exposed. That we could stand before you humble and humiliated. Just asking for your touch of grace. I pray that we could have an encounter with you this morning like we just described from your story about Malchus standing before you. When you reached out to touch his ear, God, that moment where you looked him in the eye and he knew. Help us to know you in that way this morning, God. Help us to see you as the Son of God, the Savior of our lives, the Savior of our sin, who gave yourself for us because of your great love. Speak to our hearts now. It's in your name we pray.